0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to take in turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We had a great little bit of a respite through our study of Daniel with the holiday season, with everything going on through Christmas and New Year. And now here we are back together again, back in the gym, back in Daniel. So, so thrilled to be back here. Those of you who are teachers know that there are different ways Of learning, different ways that people learn. They learn visually, they learn hearing, they learn reading, they learn watching and doing. I think that anyone who is a parent and has seen their kids mimic the things that they do, they will see that there's a lot of learning that happens in those early years just by watching and by imitating, by doing what they are watching their parents do. Imitation is so helpful when you can see somebody doing something and then think, okay, that's how it can be done. That's how it should be done. And that's how I'm going to try and do it. I'll never forget uh, early on in our church plant when we were still meeting at my house to do rehearsals. Um, our dear sister, Carissa, was playing the cajon, that little box that you sit on you kind of hit in the front. And my daughter was watching us as we were doing our rehearsal. I, she was probably like three or four at the time. I think she was around three. Uh, she saw Carissa doing it, Miss Carissa to her. She was watching Miss Carissa and she saw how she was hitting the cone, how she was doing it in rhythm. She saw how we were just kind of rocking out to the music. And then she was just kind of looking at everything going on. And then she ran away. She got a Kleenex box, brought it back, sat on it and started hitting it just like Carissa was doing it. We have a video of that. It's one of my favorite videos, watching her just see, you could see the wheels turning as she saw somebody doing something. She goes, I think I can do that. I want to do that. I'm going to try that as it was modeled by Carissa. I want us to do the same thing this morning. I want us to watch Daniel and to see him model for us what praying should look like, how we should pray, why we should pray, what we should pray. He's going to model that for us and then I want us to simply imitate what he's doing and learn from him. I love how God does this in the book of Daniel. We've been going through narrative for the few uh, first couple chapters, and then we launched into prophecy. And some of these prophecies have been weird and crazy and a little bit difficult to understand and dive in, in deep and a lot of history going on. And then here in Daniel chapter nine, before we get to another prophetic section, it's almost like God presses pause for us and says, I, I want you to take a breath You don't have to worry about prophecy right now. I'm going to give you something that's so easy to see and to understand. It's prayer. It's prayer. After this prayer, we're going to get into the back half of Daniel chapter 9, which is one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible. Daniel's 70th week. But we often forget that that prophecy follows this prayer. That prophecy is an answer to this prayer. So we need to understand this prayer before we go to that prophecy. Daniel 9 is one of the longest prayers in the Bible, and one of the best ways to learn how to pray is to study the prayers of the Bible. Daniel has characterized himself for us in this book as a man of prayer. In chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream that couldn't be interpreted, Daniel prayed and asked God for help. God gave him the interpretation of the dream, and then Daniel gave that interpretation, and he prayed again to give God thanks for the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel Chapter six, he prayed three times a day. He committed to three times a day and then probably more praying throughout that, but he committed to three times during the day and that's what got him thrown into the lion's den. Daniel prays when he needs guidance. He prays when he wants to give thanks. He prays three times a day. And here in Daniel chapter nine, he's praying yet again. And this time he's praying a prayer of confession. John Owen, uh, the old Puritan author said, quote, what an individual is in secret on his knees before the Lord, that he is and no more. So I want to ask you right off the bat, how is your prayer life going? January 2023, maybe some New Year's resolutions to pray more, to pray more specifically to have greater times of praying. How's your prayer life going? And then in your praying, what is it that you're praying for? This morning, we are going to see Daniel model for us how to pray, what prayer should have inside of it, and then how to confess sin the way that we should be confessing it. So let's read this section together, Daniel chapter nine, verses one through 19, and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Daniel writes in verse one, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, from the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, discerned in the books the number of the years concerning which the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying of waste to Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my full attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer through supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, we've even turned aside from your commandments and judgments. Moreover, we have not listened to your slaves, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have banished them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion, and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him nor have we listened to the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he put before us through his slaves the prophets indeed all Israel has trespassed against your law even turning aside not listening to your voice so that the curse that has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses the servant of God because we have sinned against him Thus, he has established his words, which he had spoken against us and against our judges who judged us to bring on us great calamity for under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like this that was done in Jerusalem." As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come on us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and acting wisely in your truth. Therefore, the Lord has watched over the calamity and brought it on us because the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all of his deeds, which he has done, but we have not listened to your voice. So now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and have made a name for yourself. As it is this day, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. O Lord, in accordance with your righteousness, let now your anger and your wrath be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your slave, to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and listen. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any righteousness of our own, but on account of your abundant compassion. Oh Lord, listen. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, give heed and take action for your own sake. Oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Father, this prayer is just leading us into the Holy of Holies. This prayer is a window into the heart of a godly man who loves you, who hates sin. And there is so much to see here and to learn. So Father, I pray that you would be our guide, be our teacher. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. May we meditate on this throughout this week, not just here in this morning, in this hour, but may we meditate on this. May we become prayers like Daniel. May we become men and women who would seek your face the way that he does. So as we watch our older brother Daniel, as we listen in on his prayer, thank you for recording his prayer. Thank you for preserving his prayer and for giving it to us this morning so that we can see, behold, be blown away, and then imitate it in our own praying. God, teach us this morning. We come as a needy people, just as Daniel said, not because of our righteousness, but because of your compassion and grace. We, act, we ask that you would act, that you would work. We love you, Father. We pray this all in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What I want to do this morning is I want to split this prayer up. I think there's three main sections in this prayer. We will see if we can get through the first two sections. And what I want to do is I want to ask two questions about these first two sections. Number one, what should we learn about prayer? And then number two, what should we learn about confession? I believe that there are four aspects of praying that are seen here in this prayer. And then I think there are four aspects of confession that are seen in what Daniel is saying. So let's go through the first four aspects of prayer. And then we'll see if uh, time allows for us to go through the four aspects of confession. So number one, if we wanna to learn to pray, four aspects of praying that we learn from Daniel, number one, prayer flows from studying the scripture. Prayer flows from studying the scripture. This is verses one and two. Look at verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So we already met Darius. We know that this first year is three, it's 539 to 538 BC. He is the king of Medo-Persia. You remember all the way back in Daniel chapter one, Daniel's taken captive by Babylon in the year 605 BC. He's probably around 15 years old, somewhere in his teenage years. And so if you do the math, if we go all the way fast forward to 538 BC, Daniel's around 82 years old. Uh, That's when these events are unfolding. He's an older man. He has gone through a whole lot in his ministry in his earthly years. And he is now under new administration. This is the administration, by the way, that is going to throw him into the lion's den. This is actually the same year that Daniel's thrown in the lion's den. So either this prayer in Daniel chapter 9 happens before he's thrown into the lion's den, or my guess is it probably happens afterward. So he's been praying, he's thrown in the lion's den, he's brought out, and I think he's praying, God, when are we going to be done? When is this going to be over? And so we're under the reign of Darius. He's the son of Ahasuerus. Don't uh, con- confuse that with Ahasuerus from Esther. That's a different Ahasuerus. It's a title. Uh, this Ahasuerus happens before, it's about 50 years before Esther. So this isn't the same Ahasuerus in Esther one. But you know, if you remember from our study of Cyrus and Darius and the way that those two names are interchangeable, Cyrus is the Persian name, Darius is the Median name. And so that's why here we have uh, the son of Darius, who is from the lineage of the Medes. He's made king. That's God's sovereignty. God established him as king over the Chaldeans, over the Medes and the Persians, and bringing in the Israelites as well. So chapter 9 occurs about 12 years after chapter 8, the events in chapter 8, and it's the same year that Daniel's thrown into the lines. And so again, chronologically, we move around a little bit after chapter 6. So there's a little bit of a chronological background. Verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, discerned in the books, in the scrolls, he was reading through the Bible. So notice first, Daniel is studying the scriptures. Daniel is older. At the end of chapter eight, he was sick. He was exhausted. He's worn out. He's probably just gone through the lion's den. If there's anybody that could just take a break and say, I need a vacation and I'm not doing anything for a couple weeks. It's our brother, Daniel. But what does Daniel do? He studies the Bible and he prays. He's discerning. He's not just reading, he's studying. I love the reality that Bible writers read their Bibles. Bible writers read their Bibles. It reminds me of Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy. You remember 2 Timothy, his last letter? He's about to die. He knows he's about to die. He says, I'm not making it out of prison. I know I'm going to die. And then he says at the end, Could you please bring me the parchments? I want to keep reading the Word of God. That's Daniel here as well. He's a prophet. Note, Note this. This is so important. Daniel is a prophet. And yet he sees that it's important to read the Bible and be instructed by it rather than pleading for and trusting in new revelation. We are not prophets, so how much more should we give ourselves to this book and not be asking for new revelation from God? I think in evangelicalism today, that's a big Um, error that we find a lot, disregarding the Bible and saying, God, will you tell me what to do from some form of revelation that's new? Even Daniel, a prophet who was getting new revelation, he says, I'm going back to the Bible. He goes and immerses himself in the scripture, and in doing so, prayer flows out. Immersion in the scriptures energizes our praying In this prayer, there are allusions to Leviticus 26.40, Deuteronomy 28.64, Exodus 34.6, Psalm 44.14, Jeremiah 25.11. This prayer is scripture-saturated. It's just brimming with a biblical view of reality because it's brimming with the Bible. This is what Jesus said in John 15 verse 7, if you abide in me and my words Abide in you, then you can ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. That's what Daniel's doing. He's abiding in the Word of God and letting God's Word abide in him. I wonder if we struggle to pray because we don't know the Scriptures well. You remember George Mueller, 1800s in England. He was the individual who. God used in so many miraculous ways to bring about the orphanage, to bring about um, saving all of these kids that didn't have parents. And um, he would, man of prayer. You remember he would do some amazing things where they wouldn't have uh, food. They wouldn't have breakfast. They didn't have milk for their food, and and so they said, "What are we going to do?" And he said, "We're going to pray. We're just going to pray, and we're going to thank God for the milk." And they said, "We don't have milk. But where's the milk?" And they say, "We're gonna just we're going to pray. God's going to provide." And as they're praying, there's a knock on the door, and the milkman said, "The cart broke down. There's no way I can move the cart with all the milk. It's going to spoil. Can you take it? Do you need it?" And he said, "Yes. We were just praying for this." That's George Mueller. He said this. He said for years he was trying to pray in the morning, without reading his Bible. And he said, inevitably, his mind would just wander. He didn't know what he should be praying for, how he should be praying, and it would just wander. Then he started reading the Bible. And he turned the Bible into his prayers. And then he said, for 40 years after that, he never read, he never prayed without reading the Bible. And that energized his praying. One pastor says it this way, only as we deepen our understanding of God As revealed in the Bible, will our praying become richer and more soundly based on who God is? So if we're going to pray the way that we ought to pray, the way that Daniel's praying, we need to be scripture saturated. It begins by studying the scriptures. I think sometimes we forget how simple the Christian life is. It's not easy, but it's simple. Diving into the scriptures, praying God's thoughts back to him, It's not all the Christian life is for sure, but there is no Christian life without those two things. Scripture, saturated praying. Notice secondly, he's reading the book of Jeremiah. He is studying the book of Jeremiah. He says, I am discerning in the books the number of years concerning which the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. So he's studying the book or the scroll of Jeremiah. And he knew from, there are are two passages in Jeremiah that he knew Jeremiah had heard from God that there were going to be 70 years of exile. In fact, we can turn there. Turn to Jeremiah 25. I just want you to see two passages that I think he had been studying. Daniel had been studying Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 25, if you go to the beginning, chapter 25, verse 1, the word that came from Jeremiah uh, concerning all of the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. The fourth year of Jehoiakim, that's 605 BC. That's when Babylon is going to take uh, captives, the first wave of deportation back to Babylon. That is when Daniel's going to be taken. Uh, Jeremiah is writing when Daniel's alive. He wrote before the captivity began. It was already recognized as Scripture, and so Daniel's pouring into this book that he knew was Scripture. And if you drop down to verse 11, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, Jeremiah says, This whole land will be a waste place and an object of horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then it will be when the 70 years are fulfilled that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. So there's going to be 70 years of exile, and then I will turn against Babylon, and I will turn against the Chaldeans. After the exile is over. Now turn to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. I think this is another passage that Daniel would have been meditating on. Jeremiah 29. You have to fast forward a couple years. It's about 597 BC when Jeremiah is writing this. And he writes in verse 4. starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is what you're supposed to do if you're in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what you're supposed to do. Build houses, verse five. Live in them. You're going to be there a while, 70 years. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens, eat their fruit. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to your dreams which you dream. For they prophesy a lie to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you to return you to this place. And then here's where Jeremiah 29, 11, a verse that's often taken out of its context. Here's where it comes in because I know the plans I have for you. I established them 70 years of exile, and then you'll be given peace. You'll be given your land. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for peace and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. So Daniel's reading through these sections of Scripture, he's probably also been meditating on Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six, verses twenty through twenty-one. You can write it down. We don't have time to turn there. It actually says that there are going to be seventy years. It connects with Jeremiah, seventy years of exile, and it specifically says because of what was done against the Sabbaths of Jubilee, against the the times of rest of Jubilee. That's Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus 25, we are told that every seventh year, uh, the people of Israel are supposed to leave the fields alone, leave the land alone, let it get its nutrients back, let it grow its soil back, let it be able to uh, foster more nutrients and nourishment for food for the next year. Trust the Lord every seventh year. And so 2 Chronicles 36 tells us that The reason why, one of the reasons, many reasons why Israel was taken away into exile was because of their disobeying the Sabbath law of the year of Jubilee. So Daniel's reading through all of these things and he sees back in Daniel 9 verse 2, he sees that it's 70 years that we are supposed to be in exile and he sees we're coming up on the 70 years. We're about to be there. That's the historical background of why this prayer is being prayed. Notice he's not just reading Jeremiah 25 and 29. He's studying it. He's discerning it. By the way, Daniel believed the Bible had prophecy and that the Bible predicted the future. And Daniel believed that the 70 years that were predicted were literal years. He didn't think there were some figurative thing for something else. No, they were literal 70 years. And so he's taking the promise of God and he's praying that back to God. And in this prayer, in verse two, it says the number of years concerning which the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. You'll see that in your Bible in all capitals, that word Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitals. That's Yahweh. That's God's covenant-keeping name. That word, Yahweh, has not been used in the book of Daniel at all up until this point. And then in this chapter alone, it's used seven times. Because as Daniel prays, he's praying based on the covenant-keeping nature of God. You promise something, and I'm praying according to that promise. So, prayer. If we're going to pray like Daniel, prayer begins. It flows from a study of scripture. It flows from meditating on the Bible, from having the scripture saturate your soul and praying God's thoughts back to him. Number two, prayer begins, once you've been studying the scripture and it's flowing through you, prayer begins, number two, by humbly entering God's presence. Prayer begins by humbly entering God's presence. This is verse three. Daniel says, I gave my attention to the Lord. Literally, it's I turned my face. I gave my face to the Lord. All other distractions are removed. I put the blinders on. I'm staring at God. I gave my face to the Lord. I sought him with prayer, with supplications, with fasting, and with thanksgiving. With sackcloth and ashes, with supplications, pleading with the Lord. I gave my face to the Lord. The word Lord is Adonai there. It's not capital L-O-R-D. It's Adonai. This is the one who's sovereign, who can do something. I'm talking to one who can act, who can do something in this moment. And he says, I'm going to pray, which is a word for making a petition. He says, I'm going to bring my supplications, which is repeated pleas for mercy. He says, I'm going to fast. Fasting is profound concern about an issue. What you're saying is what I'm praying for is more important to me than food itself. And sackcloth and ashes, that's grief. That's genuine contrition. That's humility. The ashes symbolize complete ruin. Jacob did this. David did this. Job did this. A lot of other people in the Bible did this. The point here is very clear. David Helms says it this way. While Daniel had good reason to believe that God would hear him, his confidence was not attended by so much as one ounce of presumption. Confidence in God should not become presumption upon God. We would do well to remember this very thing when we come before God in prayer. This is the attitude we need to have. Prayer flows from studying the scriptures, and then it begins by humbly entering God's presence. These are the attitudes we need. Persistent faith with humility. Like the woman in Luke 18, pleading, going back over and over again, asking God for help. Like the man who's not even able to look up to heaven saying, be merciful to me, the sinner. The third aspect of prayer is that prayer, number three, involves adoring the goodness of God. So prayer flows from studying the scriptures. It begins with a humble entering of God's presence. And then number three, it involves adoring the goodness of God, adoring the goodness of God. This is verse four, adoring God's goodness. And really, in this prayer, we kind of see that model of the Acts the way to pray, A C T S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We kind of see that lived out here by Daniel. He adores God before he ever moves into a petition. He celebrates who God is, starting at God's attributes. Even though his main burden in this prayer is a confession of sin and a petition for God to act, his adoration of God begins the whole thing. Now, this isn't always the case. You don't have to do this. I don't want us to be legalistic in thinking we can't just pray a prayer of confession. We can't just pray a prayer of supplication uh, without starting with adoration. You absolutely can. In fact, there are Psalms that do that. Psalm 3 for 1, just the psalmist jumps right in to petition, right into pleading God for, uh, for something to act. But usually you see adoration happen first. Why is this? Why is adoration the beginning? You can see it here in verse four. I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commands. Why do you start there? I think one of the reasons why it's helpful to start there is because you don't want to forget who you're talking to as you begin your praying. There's an example of this that I love um, in history. Lyndon Johnson, when he was vice president to Kennedy, was talking to a news reporter, and the news reporter was asking him a number of questions. They were in an office, and and they were talking, and he was asking a number of questions, and Lyndon Johnson uh, wrote a little note, called his secretary in, gave his secretary the note, the note. Uh, the secretary walked out with the note, came back in with another note, gave it to Lyndon Johnson. He looked at it and he said, great, thank you so much, put it down, uh, threw it into the wastebasket. And after talking with the reporter, Lyndon Johnson walked away. The reporter looked in the trash can, saw the note that was crumpled up a little bit open, and the note said on it, who is this that I'm talking to? Who am I speaking to? He didn't even know. He's talking to the reporter and he had to ask his secretary, who am I even talking to? And then once he figured out, oh, she came back with the name. This is who you're talking to. Great, thank you so much. He didn't even know. I think that happens to us when we're praying a lot. We just kind of jump right into this rote, maybe memorized praying that we forget who is it that we're even talking to. That's why I think it's really helpful to begin with adoration. He starts by saying, I prayed to Yahweh, my God. I prayed to the one who is God over all. This is why Jesus says for us in our praying, we should pray like this, our father who is in heaven, far beyond us, way greater than anything we could possibly imagine. That is our God. God is God. Yahweh means I am. And when we're praying with adoration, we are saying, yes, you are. That's how we begin. Yes, you are. But notice, it's not just Yahweh God, it's Yahweh my God. Just as Jesus said, God who is in heaven, but he's our father. Our father who art in heaven. He's so far beyond us, but he's also our father. He's Yahweh, but he's also my God, personal my God. He says, I prayed to Yahweh, my God, and I confessed, and I said, alas, oh, Lord. That, That word, oh, is like our please. Please, Lord, listen. You are great. You are awesome. You keep your covenant. Literally, it's you keep the covenant and you keep the steadfast love. You keep the uh, covenant. It's a definite article. You do not neglect your promises. You make them come to pass. Leon Wood says in his commentary on Daniel, God keeps all of his covenants, all of the ones that he makes, he keeps them. And he always extends steadfast love to those who in frailty and inability have failed to live up to them. That's why we need his steadfast love, because we keep on failing. And so Daniel says, I'm seeking you, the one who keeps his covenant for those who love you and keep your commandments. Obedience is just love demonstrated. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So these are your people. We love you, but we've sinned. We love you, but we've sinned. So... Number one, prayer flows from studying the scriptures. That's verses one and two. Number two, prayer begins by humbly entering God's presence. That's verse three. Number three, prayer involves adoring the goodness of God. Before you just jump right into confession or jump right into petition, you're adoring God's goodness. That's verse four. And then the fourth aspect of prayer is that prayer must be characterized by honest and full confession of sin. Honest and full confession of sin. Prayer has to be characterized by an honest and full confession of sin. And this really is verse 5 through verse 14. This is the next section of this prayer. So we've seen number one, four aspects of praying. Prayer flows from studying the scriptures, begins by humbly humbly entering God's presence, involves adoring the goodness of God, and must be characterized by honest and full confession of sin. Now, I want to zero in on that confession of sin. What does true confession of sin look like? Four aspects of true confession of sin. Beginning in verse five. Number one, true confession of sin begins by identifying the nature of sin itself. True confession of sin starts with you identifying the nature of sin. If you're going to truly confess sin, you have to identify what it is that you're confessing. So notice what Daniel does. Verse five, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and judgments. Five different synonyms in this one verse for wickedness, for sin. He says, we've sinned. Uh, That's the Hebrew word chata, which just means to miss a mark, to completely miss something. Just If we had time, we'd turn there. It's a really cool passage. Just write down Judges chapter 20, verse 16. In Judges 20, 16, there's a description of a people group who are really good with bows and arrows. And it says they can shoot at anything and they will not miss. And that word miss in Judges 20, that word miss is the same word here for sin. We've missed something. We've missed the mark of God's holiness. This is why Paul in Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark of God's glory and his holiness. He uses the word iniquity. We've committed iniquity, verse five. Iniquity, that Hebrew word is to bend or to twist something. You could think of it this way. The idea is that when we sin, we leave the straight road that God has set before us, the path of righteousness, and we make our paths crooked. He uses the word wicked. We've acted wickedly. That means that we're guilty of a crime. That word wicked be- means we're guilty of, of doing something that's a crime. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 25, uses this same word in regard to the exile to say because of their wickedness, they've been sent into exile. They're going to be exiled. Daniel's not saying, you know what, we messed up, but it's human nature. Daniel's saying, we offended a holy God. He goes on to say, we rebelled. We rebelled. We refused to submit to God's authority. This is how you must identify the nature of sin. We've missed the mark of God's holiness. God set a target for us, and we didn't even come close to hitting it. Our sin is leaving the straight path that God has set, pursuing crookedness. It's a crime against all of heaven. It's a rebellion against God's authority. It's saying, I don't want your authority over me. I want to be my own authority. He says in verse six, moreover, we haven't listened to your slaves, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. That's a phrase that's also from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 17 through 21 gives us those groups of people as well. He says, we haven't listened to anyone who tried to warn us. You must begin, as you confess sin, you must begin by recognizing sin for what it is. One older pastor, man by the name of Jeff Thomas, tells of going to a a hospital Visiting a lady from his church who had broken her arm and was staying with her. And while leaving, he heard another lady in another room saying over and over again, I just want to die. I just want to die. So he went into her room and began sharing the gospel with her. Telling her that if she does die, she's going to meet God. And she needs to be prepared to meet him by praying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. To which she responded, I am not a sinner. And if you knew me, you would know that I wasn't. I wonder how often we feel that way. We might not say that because we know that's unacceptable speech, right? But I wonder how often we feel that way, especially in the way that we pray, especially when we're confessing, God, I know I did something that was wrong, but honestly, it's not that bad. There's a lot of worse things out there that I could have done. Someone like that lady just can't even begin to scratch at the screen door of the kingdom of God. You can't even come close to God if you think, you know what, I'm, I'm doing okay. We tend to minimize and lessen sin. We tend to use words that lessen sin instead of realizing God is holy, 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 and we have never been in our entire lives. And God, in his just judgment, could destroy us right now. True confession of sin always begins by identifying the true nature of sin. That's verses five and six. But it doesn't stop there. Number two, a second aspect of true confession. True confession continues by accepting the just consequences of sin. True confession begins by saying sin truly is sin, and you're identifying the nature of it. But secondly, it continues by accepting the just consequences of sin. This is verses seven and eight. Daniel says, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. You are righteous, but us, we receive open shame. That's the just consequence of our sin. He's not dismissing the shame. He's not lessening it or downplaying it. He's saying we deserve shame. The men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all of Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away and all the countries which you have banished them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame because we have sinned against you. He's not saying... Our punishment's too great to bear. He's not saying our shame is beyond what we actually did to offend you. He's saying we own it. We deserve it. And notice he says we. He says us and we over 20 times in this prayer. He doesn't distance himself from his people. How often do we confess in that way, where we excuse ourselves, but we pray for the sins of others, or we distance ourselves? If anyone could have done that, it would have been Daniel, because he didn't sin in the ways that these people were sinning that led them to exile. But instead, he puts himself in their shoes. Brian Chapel says, Daniel confesses the reality of his sin and the people's sin because he has been called to carry their burden as his own, even though he didn't cause the burden to begin with. He feels responsible for the people under his care. Charles Spurgeon says, a true-hearted believer does not live for himself where there is abundance of grace a great strength of mind in the servants of God in the service of God there is sure to be a spirit of unselfishness Daniel's prayer should be the blessing of God's spirit inspire us with the spirit of prayer and that his example in forgetting himself and remembering his people should help us to be unselfish too and lead us to care for our people God's people to whom we have the honor and privilege of belonging Again, Daniel's not saying he sinned or that somehow their sin became his sin and that he needs to repent because he was sinning their sin. That's not what he's saying. He's interceding on their behalf. He's going back and forth between saying us and me and them and there. He's moving and identifying with his people so that there's no me-them dichotomy. He's not saying I'm better than my people. He's saying I'm a sinner in need of grace just like my people. But his confession doesn't stop there. So he starts by saying, This is what the nature of sin truly is. Then he continues his confession by saying, we deserve the shame that we're getting. We deserve it. We've earned it because of our sin. But number three, a third aspect of true confession. Number three, true confession always clings to God's forgiveness. True confession always clings to God's forgiveness. He says, we deserve the shame that we're getting. The natural consequence, the just consequence of our sin But he doesn't stop there. Verse nine, to you, O Lord, belong compassion and forgiveness. We're not beyond saving because God is a gracious and compassionate God. True confession always hopes in the only remedy that sin has, which is God's forgiveness. It's the nature of God to be compassionate and to forgive. And so Daniel is saying, I plead with you for mercy. But he doesn't say you must give it. He says, whatever you do is just because we have sinned. We've rebelled against you, but you are a gracious God. True confession always has inside of it that gospel grace, that clinging to forgiveness. God, I have sinned and I'm coming to you asking for forgiveness because I know you lavish that upon me in Christ. Number four. The final aspect of confession that we see here in these verses, true confession includes affirming God's faithfulness in judgment. True confession includes affirming God's faithfulness in judgment. He's faithful in the midst of it to forgive, but he's faithful in the midst of it to bring about discipline and judgment. This is verses 10 through 14. In verses 10 through 14, Daniel's going to say, we sinned, and the curses that you promised for our sin against us, you have brought to pass. These curses are also in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 68. Leviticus 26, verses 14 through 39. These are the blessings and the cursings. If you obey, blessing. If you disobey, cursing. If I could summarize those passages, I would say this. The curse that God promised, that he swore for the disobedience of his people, included lack of rain, Uh, Poor crops, rampant diseases, infertility, being defeated by their enemies, and worst of all, being exiled out of the land of promise. Now, those things don't um, hang over our heads as if if we sin, we get those things. Those things are not applied to us. They are applied to Old Testament uh, ethnic Israel. What Daniel is saying, though, is what we are receiving isn't a surprise to us. This isn't just bad luck for us as the Jewish people. God promised that these things would happen. Verse 12, he has established his words. Uh, Other translations would say he's confirmed, literally in Hebrew, he has caused them to stand. He promised that if we did something wrong in this capacity to this level, that bad things would happen, and he's making good on his promise. He can't lie, and so his promises come to pass. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way, Yahweh spelled out in the explicit, gory, scary, and unnerving detail the multiple disasters that he would inflict upon his people who turned away from him. Daniel's point is that Yahweh has been faithful in his anger. He's inflicted upon unfaithful Israel precisely what he said he would. He goes on to say this, we can forget this. We sing, great is thy faithfulness, and we forget that there's a dark side to that faithfulness. God will always do what God said he would do, including both being gracious and bringing about discipline and judgment. Daniel says in verse 12, there's nothing like this been seen in Jerusalem and all of heaven. Heaven has witnessed something drastically evil. That's a, again, an allusion to Jeremiah 2. they just call upon heaven to see, has anything like this ever happened before that my people have turned away? And so verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, again, Deuteronomy and Leviticus promised these things, all this calamity has come upon us. And yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God by turning from our iniquity and acting wisely in your truth. We got stuck in our sin, stubbornly fighting against God. And Daniel has a concern here. He says, okay, 70 years of exile. We're about at the end of that. We're going to go back to the land. But here's the concern. Have we learned our lesson as a people? Are we repentant now? We weren't before. We weren't in the middle. Are we repentant now? Daniel has a grave concern. I don't want us to get out of exile, go back to the land and do it all over again. Sin short circuits God's blessing in our lives. It had to be dealt with in order for blessing to come. That's why God said, if my people will humble themselves and call me, I will hear them and I will turn away my my judgment from them. I will bless them. This is where repentance has to begin. Biblical repentance is not feeling broken over the misery that sin has brought in your life. Worldly people feel that way, right? Worldly people. Non-believers feel bad that their bad things have led to bad consequences. They feel bad about that. Repentance. True biblical repentance goes much deeper. Because we know, biblically, there is something much worse than the misery that sin brings, the consequences that sin bring. Namely, what's worse than that is that we've offended a holy God with our sin. We've spurned his glory. We've hated his love. So my question to us this morning is, have we been broken by the consequences of sin? Or are we broken because we've spurned the glory of God? We've offended a holy God. We've said, we hate your holiness. We love our sinfulness. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been given a heart that now loves to do that, loves to see God's holiness and love his holiness and hate your sinfulness. But if you're here this morning and you would say, I I don't know if I've ever experienced that. My question to you is maybe you know what sin is. You know that consequences for sin are bad, but you've never pleaded with God for forgiveness based off of you offending his holiness and rather you just saying God take away the bad consequences turn to Ezekiel 36 we'll end our time here Ezekiel 36 verse 22 often we think that as believers we repent we're non-believers we understand the gospel we understand the glory of God We repent, we turn from sin, we trust in Jesus, and then that kind of stops the the need for repentance. We've we've done that once for all, and now we just, we're believers, and we don't do that again. I want you to see Ezekiel 36, because this is fascinating when it comes to confession. Verse 22, therefore, this is Ezekiel 36, verse 22, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. We're going to talk about that more next week, Lord willing. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands. I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and then you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your uncleanness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. You will inhabit the land that I gave to your fathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all of your uncleanness this. is all God doing this work. I will call for the grain and multiply. I will not bring famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the reproach of famine among the nations. Then verse 31, when all of this has happened, you get a new heart, old hearts taken away. You can feel for the Lord. You love the Lord. When all of this has happened, verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways. And your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves to your own faces for your iniquity and your abominations. So, once you're saved, verse 31 happens. See, we often think it's the other way. We often think, I loathe myself, I get saved, and then I'm done with the loathing. God says, No, no, no I'm gonna give you a heart that now can loathe your evil ways and your sinfulness and your depravity and cling to the forgiveness that's found. In God alone. One commentator says it this way, quote, What distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is. And we confess our sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. So, two questions for us this morning. Do you pray the way that Daniel's praying? What can we learn from Daniel's prayer this morning? Those four aspects of what true prayer involves. And then number two, do you confess sin in these four ways of confessing sin? Do you confess sin the way that Daniel confesses sin? Daniel is a man of courage and conviction and here communion with God. But I believe that he could never be courageous or filled with conviction apart from this communion with God. The secret to Daniel's outward strength is his inward communion with God. So may today, this week, this year, 2023, be marked by us praying differently, confessing sin differently, and clinging to the hope of forgiveness that we have in Christ. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess the sin that we have, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us, not just from that one sin, but from all of our unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, do that this day. And if you're here this morning and you have never done that before the Lord, confess sin before him in such a way where you have clung to his mercy and grace and love. I would would pray that you would do that even as I pray now. And I would pray that you would also come up and talk to somebody up here. We would love to, to pray with you and to show you why Jesus is a forgiving, amazing God and why he loves you, how he loves you and how we should love him in return. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. We want to live in it now. We want to see that you are our great God in highest heaven. And you have now come down and occupied our lowly hearts. And we in our sinfulness have spurned that. And so we pray that you would own our hearts, reign supreme, conquer every rebel rebel power. Make us love you more today. Help us to pray like Daniel to confess sin like Daniel and to love you like Daniel loves you. And if Daniel could do this all before the cross ever happened, how much more so do we have reason with the assurance of pardon that's given in the gospel to run to you now? May we do that as we sing. We pray in your name. Amen.